You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis 5. If you were to uh, decide for the very first time to read the Bible through, and having never done that, so you're going to start out with Genesis chapter 1 and read your way through that. I mean, you would be, uh, not being familiar with the Bible, you'd be struck by the magnitude of the subject matter that you would read. For example, chapter 1, you read there what he, uh, <laughs> I mean, he spoke the earth and the skies and the planets, the universe into existence on six days, or in six days, just spoken into existence out of nothing. And you're reading along chapter 1, chapter 2, and you get chapter, I believe it's chapter 2, and what? God picks up some dust that he created, breathes into it the breath of life, and out pops Adam. <laughs> and you read on there, and he took one of his ribs and created a woman, Eve. And then you get to chapter 3, and there in chapter 3, you say, wow. I mean, they chose to disobey God, and, and immediately sin entered in the world and all the ramifications of sin. I mean, you're looking around and say, I understand that. I see it all around me, the, the sorrow and the, the suffering and the, 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 hate, the hatred and the wickedness, the evil and death. It's all around you. I mean, folks, you don't even get to the sixth chapter, the beginning of the Bible, and you're talking again, what? I mean, God stepped in to the affairs of mankind and destroyed all mankind on the face of the earth except for eight people by bringing about a worldwide flood? I mean, this is incredible stuff. It's amazing. These are some heavy chapters. I share that with you for my introduction in this morning's message because I find it most interesting how God, at the very beginning of his written scripture, Revelation to us, he drops bold hints through graphic illustrations of how he once again is going to step into the affairs of mankind in this world and do a similar repeat, if you please, as he brings the history of mankind to its close. That's what we're going to speak about this morning. I'm going to speak to you on the subject of Enoch and the coming worldwide judgment. For you at home, you don't have the outline, but it's a simple outline, so you can easily write it down. We're going to begin then with Enoch's world. Enoch's world. What was it like? Well, let's talk for a moment about his family connections. His family connections. Whether you examine Genesis 5 or the 14th verse of the book of June, you find out that Enoch was seven generations from Adam. As a fact, uh, it's interesting that when Enoch was born, Adam was 622 years old, and he would live another 308 years. Huh. One can only wonder if Enoch spent any time with Adam. After all, both were very godly men who seemed to understand the uh, times that they both were living in. I know if I were Enoch, I'd want to uh, look up Adam. I mean, the very first, first person that God created and, and say, Adam, tell me the story. Remember this, Adam did not have the Genesis, uh, Genesis account that you and I are reading that Moses wrote much later on. So I'm sort of guessing that probably he made a trip to see Adam, and who knows, we don't know how long Eve lived, but possibly he even visited with her as well. 
We're given another bit of important information about Enoch's family from Genesis in this account here in chapter 5. When he turned 65, he had a son who he named Methuselah. How would you like to go to school with that one? (laughs) The The meaning of Methuselah means man of God. What is so significant, though, about Enoch's son Methuselah? We know from Scripture that from the biblical records kept, he lived the longest on record of any man. I mean, 969 years. You kind of wonder what kind of issues of health he had to deal with over those many years. But though Methuselah might get into the Guinness World Book of Records, that's not what is so important about him. What's so important about him is that the day or the time he died, the worldwide flood that destroyed all mankind except Noah and the three, his three sons of the wives, it began. So if you were living back then, you might want to keep an eye on Methuselah. Having just taken a brief look at Enoch's family connection, let's now look at his frightening world conditions. His frightening world conditions. There is something very frightening about what was going on in that world back in Enoch's days, when he lived. As I said in my introduction, you read just the very first six chapters of all the chapters in the Bible, and already things are so indescribably bad, so evil, that God steps in and destroys the whole world by bringing a worldwide flood upon the entire planet. Staggering. What in the world transpired back there that caused God to take such extreme actions? Let's look together at Genesis 6. Turn there if you would. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read the first three verses to begin with there. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also was flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. We've looked at these verses in past messages, and I'm not going to go into detail over all that. But I believe God here is describing demonic activity. I believe these sons of God were fallen angels who cohabitated with the daughters of men. Now why? Why would that be the case? Because Satan knew back there when Adam and Eve And God confronted them about their fall. And he actually confronts Satan. He says, the seed of the woman will bruise you on the head. It will bring a death blow to you. And through that seed of the woman, redemption will come for fallen mankind. And Satan, I believe, has stepped right into the affairs of man and said, I'm going to pollute the woman's lineage that that never happens. God stepped in with a worldwide flood. By the way, that is supported, I believe, by 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 and 7. And they describe God's judgment upon these fallen angels, these demons, back here in Genesis 6 when he cast them into the, that dark pit called Tartarus where they're reserved there 
for the day of judgment which is yet to come. And by the way, just for a footnote, you might recall that I believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form, and two angels showed up to visit Abraham. And you remember, Abraham went out, he killed the uh, lamb, and he provided a meal for them, and evidently, they must have eaten. They must have ingested the food. Not only that, these two righteous angels went down to Sodom, and the men down there wanted to have sexual relations with them. So I don't think we're so far off here in Genesis 6, but let's continue on. Look at verses 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have, crea- whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now drop down to verses 11 through 13. What a graphic description. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. How does... Scripture described world conditions just before and during the coming seven-year tribulation. Would you agree with me that it's similar to God's description of Enoch's days? That's right. All flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth, and the earth was filled with violence. There certainly is no fear of God before man's eyes today. Surely the Apostle Paul's description of the last days is now here. For he writes these words, 2 Timothy 3, in the last days. I know they began back there when Jesus came the first time, but look how they've been magnified and growing in all this. Difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. They'll be disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. Now listen to this. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then Paul adds this as a Tack on there, if you please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. But evil men, listen to it, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is that not a graphic picture of our culture and our world today? That's right. Boy, is it ever fomenting and growing. And what about the upsurge of demonic activity? I want people in the church to wake up if they're not aware of this. 
We saw back in Enoch's day the upsurge of demonic activity in chapter 6. What about our own day today? Listen, look at the venomous attack on marriage and the family and the home. Look at the demonic activity in our schools and universities. Wow. Listen, folks, that's demonic. That's fallen angels that are behind the scene. Look at what is it, Ephesians chapter 6 that describes that. Look at the out and out promotion of the homosexual life, and you'll hear that from this pulpit, at least when I'm preaching. Not only is it uh, can condone, it is now backed by laws carrying severe penalties for those who oppose it as being wrong, as being a hate crime. That is, they view us, if we say it's wrong and sin, as a hate crime. And what about God's giving the nation's leaders over to a depraved mind? Nation leaders being given over to a depraved mind, as Paul warned about in Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. For this reason God gave them over to a degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, when you pass laws and no longer confirm that a person is either male or female, and when you allow males to decide that they are females and permit them to go into the women's bathrooms and locker rooms, even where innocent little girls are, listen, you've been given over to a demonic depraved mind. This is the culture we're living in today. And then, there's the mass murder of our precious, innocent, unborn, even right up to the very time of their birth. And that list goes on and on. I'm not trying to exhaust it. I just want you to be aware of the culture we are living in right now like the days of Enoch. But listen to this, listen to this. But even where we find ourselves today with such corruption and violence and demonic activity, we've still not seen the half. We have still not seen the half of what's going to take place on this earth. Listen to what this world is about to, and I say this, is about to experience in the coming seven-year tribulation. In Revelation 9, we hear the fifth angel sounds his trumpet. And that angel, there's an angel that has a key to the bottomless pit. You can read it in Revelation 9. He goes down, evidently it's a fallen angel because he's called a bad Napoleon. He goes down, he unlocks that bottomless pit, and out come millions upon millions of hordes of demons. And they will afflict man. It will be like hell on earth at that time. My, these demons are going to torment the masses of humanity. It will be, folks, just like the days of Enoch. Just like the days of Enoch. Horrible beyond words, absolutely horrible. Are we not living on the edge of that right now? Having looked at Enoch's world, I now want us to look at Enoch's walk. Enoch's walk. The Bible says he walked with God. He walked with God. Genesis 5.24 reads, Enoch walked with God. 
I would say that the great majority of people have followed the religion of Cain. They worship a God of their own making. They know nothing of the one true God who has revealed himself on the pages of Scripture. Vast numbers of people say they know God, but, unlike Enoch, they do not walk with God. It is striking to note that when God destroyed mankind with that worldwide flood, only eight people out of all the masses of humanity back then entered the ark and were saved. Only eight people. My! Out of perhaps a couple billion people, only eight people were saved? And that was under powerful preaching by Enoch and Noah. One can only wonder how many of the people who say they know this one true God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and the Bible actually do walk with God today. To walk with God is to love him. It's to obey him. And seek to live a righteous, godly life. It is to worship him. Dear ones, it is to deal with sin in our life. And if you're genuinely saved, you do that. Though imperfectly, we do it. As I said earlier, Enoch was a godly man. He walked with God. All the people around him knew Enoch belonged to God and walked with God. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 12. He said about these last days, because lawlessness is increased and has it not increased. Would you not agree with me that lawlessness has increased around the world? Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. It isn't just believers whose love grows cold. I think about our nation and uh, the fact that the Bible was a part of our nation, and look how we have just moved away from that. In fact, adamantly we insist on moving away from God and the Bible and anything righteous. The love of many is growing cold. In fact, Paul said in that day there would be a great falling away. I think we better start expecting that. A great falling away. Well, he walked with God, but secondly, he was pleasing to God, your outline. He was pleasing to God. Hebrews 11:5 says, he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Let me ask you a question, a question that needs to be answered. Who is pleasing to God? Let Scripture answer that. Let God answer that from Scripture. He's very clear about who is pleases Him. Romans 8, verses 8 and 9, He says, And those who are in the flesh cannot, cannot please God. What did He mean? He means any person who is unsaved. Any person who has never been regenerated, been born again, no matter their efforts, no matter their moral goodness, they cannot, they cannot gain any merit with God. They cannot please God. Who are those in the flesh? Every unsaved person is in the flesh. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, not generally been born again, not regenerated, well, then you're in the flesh. 
Your religion won't please him? Boy, there's lots of religions in the world, aren't there? And a lot of those religions emphasize moral goodness. But your moral goodness won't please him. Nothing you ever could possibly do would please him. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, here it is, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's encouraging to hear. The masses of people are deceived into thinking they are pleasing to God. Multitudes are very religious. As I said, many religions teach that, that their followers are to live good moral lives as well. Multitudes do seek to live moral decent lives and they actually think God is pleased with their religious efforts and therefore they think they gain favor or acceptance with God. But listen again to God's clear declaration. Those who are in the flesh cannot, cannot please God. It's open shut. That's God speaking. The only person, the only person who can please God must have the Spirit of God dwelling in him. They must be genuinely saved and be clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness. In other words, he must become your and my life. Clothed with his righteousness. We need to start asking people, does God the Holy Spirit dwell in you? To find out whether they're genuinely saved or not. Do you have the Spirit of God? Let me apply it a little further. This morning I do not ask if you believe in God. The world believes in God in different ways. I do not ask, are you religious? I do not ask if you belong to a certain church or if you've gone through confirmation or you've been baptized or if you've participated in some of the, what they call, church sacraments. I don't ask any of that questions. I ask you just three questions. Just three questions. Number one, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? And how do you verify that? Questions two and three help you with that. Number two, are you pleasing to God? Do you walk in fellowship with Him? Do you love Him? Do you serve Him? Do you deal with sin in your life? And number three, do you walk with God and others know that you walk with God? Enoch walked with God, and he was pleasing to God, and everyone, everyone knew that Enoch walked with God. We come now to the third major point of my message, Enoch's witness. Enoch's witness. First, I want to talk about this. He warned a wicked, evil culture. He warned a wicked, evil culture. We've already seen how evil and how wicked that culture of his day was. Demonic activity was running rampant throughout the world. God looked and saw the whole earth was filled with violence. He mentions that three times or twice anyway, and all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. He mentions that three times. And believe me, the people back there knew who Enoch was. They knew him. How do I know that? That one page in your Bible that you call the book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation, 
Listen to what Jude writes. He says, after describing the wicked men of Enoch's day, Jude writes this, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, and listen to his message, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, against God. Clear back there early in Genesis 5, God raised up and he sent Enoch. God raised him up. He sent him to confront and warn those people of their ungodly deeds and of their ungodly ways. He even confronted them and warned them about the things they are saying against God by blaspheming God. He warned them about that as well. You can bet those people knew who Enoch was. And you can also be sure that 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 wicked, evil generation of people hated him and they hated his message as well. They hit it with a vengeance. In Enoch's witness, he warned this wicked, evil culture. But secondly, secondly, he confronted them and their sin. And secondly, he warned of the coming worldwide judgment. Oh, clear back there in Genesis 5. He warned them. He warned them of the coming worldwide judgment. As we saw in that Jude passage, Enoch not only confronted and warned this generation of their ungodly, their sinful, their rebellious lives against God, their blasphemy against God, he also warned them of a coming worldwide judgment. Again, Jude writes, Enoch prophesied saying, Behold, that should grab your attention right there, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. Though Jude says Enoch prophesied that the Lord came, past tense, it would appear Enoch was not prophesying the coming worldwide flood of his day per se, but rather the coming of the Lord described in the book of Revelation when the Lord returns to the earth at the end of the great tribulation and judges Antichrist and his armies as well as all the nations on earth at that time. Since Jude also writes of Enoch's prophecy to those living in Jude's day, though. This seems to confirm Enoch was prophesying this great judgment that is now about to fall upon this world with our Lord's return. Although, although I think that Enoch's prophecy of the coming judgment could have a dual fulfillment, referring to the worldwide flood that was about to come, as well as the end of time when the Lord was going to come back and judge all the nations and peoples of the world. Let me apply this. God does not have a plan B. You agree with that? God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a backup plan here that you and I are living right now in this day and age and we see all the things going before us in our country and around the world. Just as he revealed himself to Enoch and sent him to warn that wicked, evil culture of their sinful ways, their blasphemy about, against God, even so, he has saved you and me and sent us to warn our generation. We're it. The redeemed are it. God doesn't have a second plan here. 
And we appear to be living in the last, if you please, of the last days before he comes in flaming fire and judgment. Think about this. Think about this. God has you and me living right now, and he has commissioned you and me with a very important job to do. Like those exceedingly overripe figs that the prophet Jeremiah saw, our culture is overripe for judgment. But God is still salvaging some who will come to saving faith. Not only that, multitudes of people that they sense, even multitudes of people that are not even church people, they sense this world is spinning out of control. And they fear disaster is imminent. Even the unsaved world talks about Armageddon. They've been doing that for, what, 20 years or longer, and make movies about the coming worldwide judgment and its devastation. The world just senses it. And we who belong to God and know our Bible know how this all is going to play out, do we not? You better know your Bible and know how it's going to play out. It is true that most of the world will scoff at us and reject us in our message, but there is still that remnant that will still listen and respond. We have a job to do. We are God's special force sent in to rescue those chosen by God. Like Enoch's witness, we too must witness to those around us and warn them of God's coming worldwide judgment. Dear ones, it's coming. And coming very, very soon. That brings me to my final major point. Enoch's withdrawal. Not at the bank. Now, I want you to know I went through all the W's in the dictionary to find a word with a W for withdrawal. That's the best I could do. So you're stuck with it, okay? I mean, a word in W that captures the idea of Enoch suddenly being snatched away. So, you got to stuck with withdrawal. That's the best, okay? First of all, I want you to know this about his withdrawal. It was confirmed by Scripture. Confirmed by God, in other words. How important is that? Read Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. <laughs> we get to the New Testament. We read again in Hebrews 11.5. Hebrews 11.5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his taking up, being taken up, he was pleasing to God. You see, dear ones, Enoch's withdrawal, his instantly being taken up alive into heaven, is so certain the fact that God says, I'm putting it both the Old Testament and the New Testament so you won't miss it. This is not what we call a uh, myth or a fairy tale. This actually happened. He was caught up to heaven without dying. It was confirmed by Scripture and you're about to see just how important that fact is to you and me today. Secondly, not only was it confirmed by Scripture, but number two, <laughs> dear ones, it was sudden. Wow. <laughs> it was sudden. It just suddenly happened. 
One day Enoch was walking with God and he just suddenly disappeared. Can you imagine? Mrs. Enoch says to Methuselah and all the other kids, go out and find Dad. It's time for supper. And they go out and they look everywhere with this guy and they come, come and say, you know what? We found his robe. We found his sandals. We found his staff. We found a ring, but we can't find Dad. <laughs> wow. Not only that, everybody begins to ask, where is Enoch? I mean, his powerful preaching, confronting them with their wicked deeds and of the coming judgment, suddenly stopped. Where's Enoch? Enoch's withdrawal was sudden. Keep that in mind, will you? It was sudden. Thirdly, his withdrawal, it heralded the imminent worldwide judgment. It heralded the imminent worldwide judgment. We saw in Jude what Enoch's message of warning was to this world. After his disappearance, it was not long before God stepped into the affairs of man and he destroyed all mankind except for eight people, Noah, his three sons, and wives. And even before God brought that worldwide flood upon the world, out of his great mercy, he gave the people another 120 years before that flood of waters came. And during those 120, listen, during those 120, one, or 120 years, Noah took up Enoch's witness and message, but the world was so overripe that none of those people responded and repented and turned to the Lord. What a picture of our world today. What a picture of the world today. Let's go to application. Application. At the beginning of our service, Pastor Jim read us Luke 21, 20 through 36. Do you know what I find interesting about that passage that he read? Here's what I find interesting about that. All those signs are given to the people who will end up in the seven-year tribulation, not to the ones who will not be here. Wow. And what does Jesus say to those people? There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming. You sweat and God starts pouring those judgments out upon the world. Believe me, he will get the world's attention. As he steps into the affairs of man, for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Boy, are we not seeing that be the very setting today. Listen, we know the leaders of the nations are worried about global warming. No, they are. They're worried about it. All around the world, they're worried about it. And the masses of the people have bought into that as well, and they're worried about it as well. Let me say this. No matter what they legislate, it ain't going to work. Let me prove that. Not that we're not to be good stewards of the earth. But it's not going to work. Because during the seven-year tribulation, we're told in Scripture, the earth is going to get very, very hot. So hot that a third of the earth's vegetation is going to burn up. And here's what's going to happen when that angel sounds the first trumpet judgment. Here we read it, the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. Listen to this, listen to this. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Folks, it's coming. It's coming. 
Not only that, and that's not figurative language. Even today, we find ourselves having to fight more and more massive out-of-control fires throughout the nation and other parts of the world. But you know what? That's not even the half of it. That's not even the half of it. When we get near the very end of those seven years of tribulation, God pours out those seven vile or bull judgments. Listen to God's description of the fourth bull. This is news that's going to actually happen. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. That's chapter 16, by the way. In that same chapter, we find that all the polar caps will melt due to the sun's extreme intense heat, and that God and, and this God ordained global warming, if you please. Huh. That global warming that is about to come upon the earth will do this damage. It surely looks like things are quickly heating up and heading that way right now. You're reading about it every day. You're seeing it on the news every day. Do you know that the book of Revelation tells us, listen to this, you won't like this, okay? Good news has come a little bit later on, but you won't like this. The book of Revelation tells us, and this is from God, it tells us that one half of the world's population is going to die off during these seven years. Get that? One half of the world's population is going to die off. We're told they're going to die by the sword, resulting, of course, from the Antichrist and his murderous henchmen, as far as in warfare as well. We're told they're going to die by famine. Oh, this is interesting. They're also going to die from pestilence and from wild beasts, as well as from demons, fallen angels, who will kill these people. Pestilence? Pestilence? What is this worldwide COVID-19 with all its variants if it's not a pestilence, dear ones? In this past year and a half, something very significant has transpired that should have paramount importance to every Christian who knows his or her Bible. This worldwide COVID-19 pandemic has created that longed-for opportunity for the powers that be to finally gain unrestrained control over the masses of people. I'm not saying that COVID-19 is not a real thing. I'm talking about how the powers that be are, going, are using it and are going to use it. How do you think, how do you think Satan's number one man, the Antichrist, this man of sin, this one world governor or, or, or leader, gains control over the nations of the earth. Listen to these verses from chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. Verse 2, the last part, in the dragon, that's Satan the devil, gave him, that's Antichrist, this coming one world leader or dictator, he gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now listen to verses 7 through 9. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority, get this, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. 
All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And then he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. That tells you how he's going to get come to power. Satan's going to put him into power. It always intrigues me if you study history how whenever these people who want all this power want to get into power, they start with worldwide chaos. They just create chaos in every hand. They turn people against people to accomplish their purpose. Well, this is big time going to be taking place. And what does Jesus say as a warning to those people who are going to see all these signs? He said this, but when these things begin to take place, get that? When these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And then our Lord concludes with these words, but keep on the alert at all times. And that's exactly what the church is not doing. Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now let me make an application here. Here's my application of Enoch's withdrawal. Scripture indicates that there's a very great event that must take place. A very great event that must take place just before these seven-year tribulation can begin. Like Enoch, there is a remnant of people who know God, walk with God, who are saved, belong to God, who instantly will be taken out of here and in a split second of time will find themselves in heaven possessing glorified bodies. I don't need to finish this sermon. God, bring it on now. Yeah, I knew you'd say him into that. Back there, you can boy, keep an eye on that guy there. <laughs> Remember what I earlier said about Enoch's withdrawal? Not only was it sudden, it was also confirmed by Scripture. What God declared in Scripture happened, it did actually happen. And what God declares in Scripture is going to happen, will indeed happen. I find it amazing that God chose to give us a preview of this great event clear back there in the beginning of our Bibles in the first five chapters, chapter five of Genesis. Wow. When he instantly caught up Enoch and took him to heaven, did you notice in that Hebrew 11 passage just how clear God was in declaring Enoch's being caught up and taken to heaven? God says this, listen to it. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He didn't die. I like that. He didn't die. He didn't go through death. He went alive into heaven. And many, many years later, what did the Apostle Paul write to you and me? <laughs> Love these verses. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, those who are saved that have passed on, they were going to be raised first. They'll rise first. Then... Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 15 says it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of eye. That's so fast you don't have time to get ready. Amen. My redeemed brothers and sisters, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. Your redemption surely is drawing nigh.
well. As the Apostle Paul wrote, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait. Are you there? Eagerly wait. What a wicked, evil world. What a dangerous, deadly world. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his power by the exertion of his power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Listen. Listen, it happened to Enoch. It happened to Enoch. Our world today is on the edge. Even the unsaved masses are troubled and sense terrible things are about to happen in this world. We who are saved and who know our Bible know what God's plan is. More than ever before, now is the time we must look and expect to be taken up out of here. Amen? Amen. Live in light of His imminent return. This should be the great encouragement to you and me, encouraging us to eagerly long for and look for our upward call of God to live for him while we can. But what a warning this should be to the Christian who knows these things and sees the stage being set all around him for God's prophesied great worldwide event to take place, but does not live or walk with him. How sad. How sad. Not expecting the Lord's return in the air to take his redeemed out there. This has always been a troubling verse to me, and I'm glad that God used the scripture to trouble me. Listen to the Apostle John's words in, in uh, second, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John 2.28. Listen to what he says. Now little children, so he's writing to believers, now little children, abide in him. Abide him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Hard words, aren't they? But what a warning for us in this culture we're living in right now. And woe to the one who is not saved, the one who will not repent of his or her sinful, prideful life and turn to the Lord and cry out to him to save him or her. Woe to that person and this world you're just about to inherit as all hell breaks loose and God pours out his wrath upon all these earth dwellers. This worldwide judgment, dear ones, it is coming. In fact, it now it is now right at the door. Are you ready? Do you belong to him? How sad, how great the loss when suddenly that worldwide flood came and they all perished there in the days of Enoch and Noah. Don't be like them. Respond. Respond now to the voice of the working of the Spirit of God calling you to come and get saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I realize it's a one sense a hard message. But my, how we sense, we who know the Bible, how we sense, we're living right now as it was in the days of Enoch. And worldwide judgment is about to come. Lord, it can be a discouragement to the heart of your people. I know I'm concerned about my children, my grandchildren. 
I've sort of run my course. But I thank you that they can face that day because of your resurrection. I thank you they can face that day because of your Holy Spirit that dwells in them. I thank you they can face that day because of the grace you'll give them and for the Word of God, the written Word of God that will sustain them, that can guide them, that can strengthen them. But Father, I pray that you'll wake up the church around the world, the redeemed church. May may we be awake. May we start living in light of the imminent return as you have promised. You're going to come back. I believe it's the dearest thing on your heart, Lord Jesus Christ. You look back at your father and say, "Is is it now? I want to go get my redeemed bride and bring her home. I want the redeemed bride to be home with me. Father, is it now? And one of these times, you're going to hear your father say, go, get your bride and bring her home. Father, we're troubled by what's going on in this world. We are absolutely troubled. We've seen our nation turned upside down on its head. We've seen even the world now turned upside down on its head. We who know the scriptures see demonic activity just rampant. And we're concerned as we read the book of Revelation how much more so that's going to take place. And so I pray that we'd walk close to our God. I pray that we would be used by you to share with those around us. They might be loved ones in the family, people we work with, people we go to school with, people that we live next to. May you use us to share as Enoch that message to be an example, a witness to them, to warn them but also to warn them of the coming worldwide judgment. Bring many to saving faith. And Father, I conclude with these words. I love it because it's the last book, the last chapter, nearly the last words in the Bible, and it's our heart cry that know you. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.